Thanks for checking out this message from Coastal Community Church. We hope it's helpful and encouraging. Welcome to everybody watching online. Thank you guys uh, for tuning in near and far. Uh, if you are near, we'd love for you to join us in person. Uh, but thank you for staying engaged and joining all these uh, beautiful people here today. It's a, a beautiful day in Charleston. Uh, as, as Scott said, we have so many exciting things coming up. And uh, I'm excited about life groups. Uh, my wife and I, I'm involved in two different life groups. Love for you to be a part of that, uh, my groups. Uh, but there's so many, so pick them. Uh, and, and like Scott said, on the weekend, of February the 12th. That's Life Group Sunday here. And uh, we just pull out all the stops and we transform our gather space into a uh, life group fair, almost like a college fair or a job fair, uh, but for groups. And there's great food and you get to meet all the group leaders and all the tables representing the, the different groups. And they're so creative and so fun. Um, it's just a great, uh, a great experience. You're not gonna wanna miss it. And that weekend, February the 12th, we kick off uh, a new series here. We've been preaching our way through Romans, and we've taken some strategic breaks along the way, and uh, we're getting ready to take another little break. Uh, we'll come back to Romans again, uh, but we're taking a break because on February the 12th, we're kicking off a series called Relationship Rescue. Relationship Rescue. Raise your hand if you could ever use any help whatsoever in any relationships whatsoever, okay? For those of you not raising your hand, you're a liar, and the truth is not in you. Um, but uh, that's true whether you're just talking about friendships or dating or marriage or parenting. I mean, all of it. We just need help sometimes uh, in our relationships. And so inside your bulletin, I know a lot of these have probably already fallen on the floor, uh, but there's, there's these little invite cards. That's all these are. These are for you to give away to somebody and invite them to come to that series. In fact, there's a couple of stations you'll see on your way out with these little invite tools, little cards to use to invite people to that series, and it is going to to be a phenomenal series and a phenomenal uh, weekend as we kick off uh, that uh, series and Life Group Sunday and everything. So, but let's jump right back into Romans this morning. Uh, we jump back into the series uh, in the new year, and uh, we found ourselves uh, in a very interesting section of Romans, honestly, uh, chapters 9 through 11. Truthfully, a lot of times when people, uh, pastors and churches kind of go through Romans, to be honest with you, a lot of times they skip over this section because it's kind of difficult, but I'm glad we don't do that here at Coastal. But the, the, the section, it's interesting. It's all about how uh, the nation of Israel fits into the overall plan of God. And uh, so Paul addresses some of the questions that he knew that his Jewish readers would have um, about salvation about the grace of God. If you remember, chapters nine uh, dealt with their past. Uh, chapter 10 dealt with their present. And now here we are in chapter 11, and we're talking about uh, their future. Or more specifically, this. Do they even, even have one? I mean, does Israel have a future in light of the fact that now uh, the Apostle Paul says that you know, the gospel has gone out to all people everywhere, all nations everywhere? In fact, notice how the chapter begins in verse one. I asked then, did God reject his people? Now stop there for just a moment. So that's the question that this particular chapter answers. You know, has God permanently set aside Israel because of their unbelief? Has he written them off? Well, what does Paul say? I asked then, did God reject his people? 
By no means. In fact, drop down to verse 11 and notice that he asked and answered the question again, a second time. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. So, is God finished with the people of Israel? No. And so, Paul explains his answer here in chapter 11. And so today, we're going to kind of do what we did in chapter 10. Today in chapter 11, we're going to look at the first two reasons why God has not, you know, rejected them, that he, he still has a plan for them. And then next Sunday, we're going to finish this section up by looking at the next two reasons why. Now, I believe, because I know it's possible to come to something like this, and you're hearing all this, and maybe you're, you might be here for the first time, and you're thinking, okay, what in the world does any of this have to do with me? I believe there's an application for us. I believe that there's an application for us today, us Gentiles, right, for the most part, uh, here in 2023. Because it's possible that you are here today and at some point you were close to God, okay? You had a personal relationship with him. You were in fellowship with God, with his people, in a local church. You know, you served, you gave, uh, you were involved, but then something happened. You drifted away. Or maybe you, you fell into sin. And that divide between you and God has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And yet you're here today. And maybe you're wondering, well, has God rejected me? You know, have I fallen so far and so hard that I'm beyond recovery. And I think Paul would answer your question the same way. Not at all. Not at all. So, let's talk about it today. Number one, first of all, Israel's rejection is only partial. It's only partial. So look back at all of verse one. And by the way, thank you so much for praying for my voice. It's not 100%, but I'm, I'm way better than I was last Sunday. But I got my water up here. I'm doing all the things, and I appreciate your prayer. So let me grab a, a sip of water. So let's look at it, verse one. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of ben Benjamin. In other words, here's what Paul's saying. Well, no, you know, if God has rejected his people, then to be honest with you, I wouldn't be here. You know, I wouldn't have come to salvation. And, and listen to me, because I think this is where the application is loud and clear for you and me today, because if there was ever, ever a person who represented Israel's rejection of Jesus, it was the Apostle Paul. You know, before he met Jesus, he hated the gospel. He, he actually murdered believers. And, you know, one look at Paul in his life before his conversion would have you saying, man, this is a Christ-rejecting, gospel-hating, Christian-killing Jew who should never, never, ever be allowed into the new kingdom. You know, he's gone too far. You know, he could never be welcomed by God. Never, you know, God could never, ever use somebody like him. In fact, listen to uh, the Apostle Paul's testimony. This is what he says in 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could, say, could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst of sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and have eternal life. You see, after his conversion, after he has that, you know, after he sees the light on the road to Damascus, Paul becomes a leading spokesman for the Christian faith. He becomes a church planter. He writes most of the New Testament. His life today, his life is a reminder that today no one, listen, no one is beyond the grace of God. And so, I, you know, I, you, you came in here today, you know, I don't know your story, but I'm telling you, God does. And you're not here by accident. You're not here by mistake. It doesn't matter, you know, who you are, where you're from, how long it's been, how far away you think you've fallen. No one is beyond the grace of God. But Paul is also living proof that God has not rejected all the Jews. In fact, he affirms it again in verse two. God did not reject who? What does he say? God did not reject his people whom he foreknew, his people. The idea here is possession. They're a people of his own, a people he foreknew, a people that he, he chose to love. And then he goes on to illustrate it using the story of Elijah. Let's continue. He says, don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. In fact, underline that word there because we're gonna come back to that, against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, I don't know if you remember you know, the story of Elijah and uh, the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. It's found in 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. You ought to read it. It's a great, great story. Israel basically, once again, has turned their back on God, fallen away from him into disobedience. And so God calls Elijah, the prophet, to, to call his people back, back home to him. And so it ends with this, this great showdown. I mean, it's a really cool story. On top of Mount Carmel, uh, uh, Elijah against the 850 prophets of Baal. And he's challenging their false gods, uh, the false gods of King Ahab and his wicked wife, Queen Jezebel. Uh, you know the story. The false gods were exposed when, when God revealed his power by sending down this fireball from heaven. And he totally consumes this water-soaked uh, altar and sacrifice that's been offered by Elijah. And I mean, it's this really dramatic scene. But the, the, the reality is, in spite of all of it, Israel still doesn't repent. And Ahab and Jezebel, they still remain in power. And worse yet, uh, Jezebel basically vows to put Elijah to death. And so this sends Elijah into this downward spiral of, of fear and depression, and he basically ran for his life. Now, Elijah's perspective was off, though, because 
Paul wants us to focus in on one aspect of his false thinking. Look back at the end of verse two. Again, it says, notice that Elijah appealed to God against Israel, not for them. Remember how we, we began this whole section with, you know, the Apostle Paul's heart for his people who are far from God, and he prays for them. Well, here's Elijah. He's not praying for them. He's praying against them. Why? Why, you know, why doesn't he plead with God for his people, for Israel? Because he'd given up hope. He did, he gave up hope. You see, the question that Paul raises, you know, in verse one, has God rejected his people? That's not an uncommon question. Because Elijah thought he had. All he could see was, you know, failure. All he could see was, you know, disobedience. He's like, you know, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they've torn down all your altars, and I'm the only one left, and now they're coming after me. What's he doing? He's having a pity party with God. You know, oh, and, and you know, here's what's crazy. Believers do this today all the time. You know, churches, believers, woe is me, God. It is so terrible in the world in which we live. And God, I am the only one left. I'm the only faithful. There's no other believers in my entire high school. There's no other believers that I work with. Oh, God, we're the only faithful church left. That's the way he was thinking. You know, he thought it was over for Israel. In his mind, they had nullified God's purposes, forfeited his promises, and there's no hope left. But here's what I want you to hear loud and clear today. Listen, we don't know what God knows, and we can't see what God sees. He knows, listen, what was his answer to him? He says in verse four, I have reserved for myself 7,000. 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You see, Elijah thought he's the only one left. There's nobody else left, God, that's faithful. And God said, no, you can't see what I see. You don't know what I know. There's 7,000 who still believe, who've not fallen away. In other words, no matter what it looks like, listen, God is still in control. Even though most of the nation had fallen away, God would not allow man's failure to hinder his purposes. He had preserved for himself a small believing remnant of 7,000. And it was through that remnant that his purposes would be carried out. You see, Elijah was wrong about Israel's future. He was wrong because he linked the hope of Israel to the work of the Israelites. And you see, I think we do the same thing today. There's a lot of prophets of doom and gloom out there today because they are linking, they're doing the same thing. They're linking the hope of the church to the, to the works of believers and not to the sovereign grace of God. It wasn't man's faithfulness that kept the hope of Israel alive. It was God's faithfulness. And the same is true today. Listen, the nation might have fallen away, but through God's grace, he preserved a remnant. God's always done that. Listen, he's done that for the last 2,000 years with the church. 
I mean, there are people who've been predicting the demise and the fall of the church and trying to destroy it ever since it began. But listen to me, no matter the period of history, whether we're talking about the dark ages or, or the circumstances, no matter what this nation becomes, God has always preserved a remnant of faithful followers. It's been that way all the way through Israel's history. In fact, look at verses five and six. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. In other words, he's saying, hey, listen, God hasn't changed. Even during his own time, Paul says, God continues to preserve a small number, a remnant, by his grace. Listen, you know, don't forget that the gospel, the good news of the gospel was first preached in Jerusalem by a Jewish preacher among Jewish people in a Jewish temple about a Jewish Messiah, and thousands believed. The first church was established, uh, that was established was a Jewish church in Jerusalem, you know, and, and it grew. It grew large, 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, 5,000 just a short time later, probably up to historians think around 20,000 just four chapters into the book of Acts. And as the early church began to grow, they sent out missionaries like, like Paul and Barnabas and, uh, to, to start churches. And in every city where Paul and Barnabas went, where did they go first? To the synagogues. And while many of them rejected the gospel and ran them out of town, many believed. And so Jews were being saved all around the world. They were a part of this remnant that Paul is talking about. And listen, the same is true today. There are believing Jews in our day all around the world. There are believing Jews here in our church. And it will continue to be true in the future. There will always be a remnant. Do you see Paul's point? He's going, okay, sure. Yes, obviously God set Israel aside, but only partially. In fact, you know, think about it. The book of James, you know, who was it addressed to? James 1.1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Who's it addressed to? Believing Jews all around the world. And then, look at verse 7. Paul begins, what then? In other words, okay, what's the conclusion of all this? Well, What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. In other words, when you look at the nation of Israel and you see that the majority of the nation has not found salvation, you know, listen, don't conclude that God has permanently set Israel aside. You say, well then, how do you explain Israel's massive unbelief? Well, that's what he answers in verses eight through 10. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be forever bent. Now, verse eight there, it's actually from two different Old Testament verses that Paul is combining. 
And he does that over and over again throughout this letter because what is he doing? He's quoting you know, their heroes. He's quoting the patriarchs to them. And the first half comes from Isaiah. The second half comes from Deuteronomy. And he's basically saying, hey, listen, don't be surprised at all this. Don't be surprised at the rejection of Israel. Don't be surprised that, that God has hardened them because it happened in the days of Moses. It happened in the days of Isaiah. This is not new. It's not foreign to the plan of God. In fact, it is the plan of God. And then along with Isaiah, he actually quotes David in verses nine through 10. And it's a psalm that's from, that David wrote about his own personal experience of being rejected and, and opposed and attacked by his own people, you know, resisting his rule. And, and it's a psalm that pronounces judgment on those who oppose God. And that's how he begins here in Romans 11, to illustrate that judgment has come, has come on Israel at this time. And that fits right into the plan of God. Moses, Isaiah, David, they all affirm it. And then what's interesting, in verse nine, he mentions their table. He says that their table, uh, may their table become a snare and a trap. So let me ask you a question, okay? What do you do at your table? typically, your dining room table. You know, you eat, right? You eat at your table. So what's he saying is that, so the place of eating, the place of feasting has now become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block to them. Now think about this for a second. What did the Jews feast on? In fact, many times in the Old Testament, it says that, use that terminology. They feasted on the law of God. And what he's, what he's bringing to their attention is that the very law, the thing that you've been so you know, focused on, that you've feasted on, and you've put your hope in, and your trust in, it's become a trap that's caught you and condemned you. So my question for you is this. What about you? You know, what are you feeding on? What takes up your, your time? You know, I mean, because be, be very, very careful. Here's what I'm saying. The very thing that you are investing so much time and effort and energy and money, it might be the very thing that condemns you and traps you. Now, in spite of all this language, though, of judgment, you know, remember back in chapter 10, he said they were a, a disobedient people, an obstinate people. Again, his own people. And now in chapter 11, you know, they're blind, they're deaf, they're people who've been eating at a table that's gonna, you know, snare them and condemn them. In spite of all this, look at verse 11 again. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. You see, not only is Israel's rejection only partial, number two, it's not permanent. It's not permanent. You know, the word fall there, where he says, again, do they, so as to fall beyond recovery, it means to be, to come to an end, to be done away with. It, it, it describes a situation that you have fallen so far that you can never get back up again. And so Paul is asking, hey, was their fall like that? Was their fall permanent? What's he say? Not at all. In fact, keep reading. Rather, 
Because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. You see, basically he says, Israel's fall in the plan of God had two purposes. One, to bring salvation to the Gentiles. Hey, you and I are redeemed today as a direct result of Israel's disobedience. That, you know, the gospel was then open to all people everywhere. And then secondly, that salvation to the Gentiles, to, to the nations, that it would bring about a testimony, a story that would make Israel envious, that they might come back, that they might be drawn back to the true Savior. Look at verse 12. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? What's he referring to there? You see, he, he is planting the seed. He's introducing the possibility of their restoration, of their coming back. And he's saying, hey, listen, if their fall into sin has resulted in all of us being made spiritually rich, can you imagine what it's gonna be like? You know, can you imagine the greater riches that's going to accompany their return to Jesus. I mean, he really wants us to understand this. In fact, look at verses 13 through 15. He says, I am talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my people to envy and save some of them. He's saying, listen, do you know why I'm happy to be an apostle to the Gentiles? Because it's through that ministry that maybe, just maybe, it might provoke some of my people into turning back to God and getting saved. Verse 15, for if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? He's going, as awesome as it is that God used our people, our people's disobedience and rejection to reach out to the world, can you imagine how much more awesome it's gonna be when they return to him. See, God, guys, this is one of the things that I just want you to catch about our, our loving God, is that his heart is always bent towards people returning, people coming back, people coming home. Now, he issues a warning here to the Gentiles, to you and me, and he sets it up with this uh, analogy, this illustration of dough and branches, okay, in verses 16 through 17. Listen to this. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches that have been broken off, now here he's talking about some of the Jews who were cut off because of their unbelief. But notice he says, some of the branches, not all of them. So if some of the branches have been broken off, and you, talking about the Gentiles, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Now, stop there. Now, I know sometimes we read this as maybe a little bit difficult for us to understand, but I'm telling you, a first century Jewish believer would have known exactly what Paul was talking about here because whenever dough was prepared for baking bread among Jewish people, they would take a portion of it and they would take it to the temple 
and they would give it to the priest as an offering to God. It was an offering of their, their first fruits. And what did it do? It reminded them that everything that they have belongs to God. And it's all set apart for him. It's all dedicated to him. And so all of the dough was dedicated in the act of offering a portion of it. You know what that is today for us? That's what our tithe is today. That's exactly what it is. The tithe is the first 10% of everything we make, all of our income, right off the top, given back to God. It's the first fruits. And as we give it to God, it is a reminder that everything we have comes from him. Everything we have is his. And in return, what does he do? He blesses the whole, all of it. It's the same thing that he's talking about here with the root at the end of verse 16. In other words, hey, if the root is holy, then the branches belong to God as well. And if we, Gentiles, are the wild olive shoot that's been grafted in, you know, we are made right as well. Grafting was a process that, that is still used in the Middle East today. Olive trees can last a long, long time. In fact, uh, when we took a trip to Israel several years ago and we went to the Garden of Gethsemane, we saw an olive tree that they, they believe is over 2,000 years old. Now, the older an olive tree gets, the less fruitful they become. So what they do then is they take branches from uh, a, a young olive tree, and they graft them into the older tree. And that tree begins producing again. They don't, they don't cut the tree down. They just break off some of the, they prune it. They break off some of the unproductive branches so that they can then graft in the new ones. And he's saying, listen, God hasn't cut down Israel. He's simply broken off some of the branches that were no longer productive, and he opened up the door of salvation to the Gentiles, to us, and he's been grafting us in. Now here's the warning though to us. Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be, granted, I could be grafted in, granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. In other words, what's he saying? He's saying, hey, you Gentiles, don't get all puffed up. As if you're better than the branches that were cut off. You know, it's almost as if Paul recognized that there would be a problem with some Gentile believers having these anti-Semitic attitudes, thinking that they're now better than the Jewish people. So it's a warning to us. I think it's a warning to the church today. It's a warning against pride. Here's why, verses 21 and 22. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, listen to this, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. In other words, if God didn't spare the Jews because of their unbelief, don't you think for a second that he's not gonna spare you either? You know, don't take his kindness, he's saying, for granted. 
You know, so this is a warning. But the whole section, and we're gonna wrap up this whole message today with this. It ends with this, this beautiful promise beginning in verses 23 and 24, and the next week we're gonna jump in to verse 25. But listen to what it says. And if they, now who's the they? He's talking about Israel. If they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, If you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted in to a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will will these, again, the Jewish people, the natural branches, be grafted in to their own olive tree? So, in other words, before we look down our noses, at unbelieving Jews, you better remember something. You better remember that it's much easier to put a natural branch back than it is to graft wild branches in their place. And that's what you and I are. He's basically saying, listen, there's no room for pride here. There's no room for boasting here. And I think the application for you and me is, hey, listen, As a believer, you're you're not better than anybody else. Don't you forget that. You know, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. I mean, do we believe that or not? You're just a forgiven sinner. That's all we are. And Paul is reminding them, and I think he's reminding us today, that it's all by God's grace. And Paul is saying, hey, listen, we are praying that God is once again gonna extend his grace to Israel and that he will bring them back, that they will return. Now, what's the condition of God's promise? Because there, you know, with every promise, there is a condition. What does he say in verse 23? If they don't persist in unbelief. You see, it's the same condition he's always had. It's never changed. Jew, Gentile, Black, white, male, female, the the same condition is there. He's talking about faith. Again, it doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done. What matters is faith. And our God, he wants you to come back to him. He wants you to return. And he says, if you believe, If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be grafted into the tree of salvation. You will be saved. No matter who you are, what you've done, or how long it's been. How long has it been for you? Listen, our God, if, if if you're not dead, he's not done with you. If you're still breathing, our God is waiting with open arms to welcome you home. And so are we. We are just this colossal collection of forgiven sinners saved by the grace of God. Join us. Join God's family. He's waiting on you to come home today. Bow your heads and pray with me.
Dear Heavenly Father, God, thank you for your plan of redemption. And God, I thank you for the amazing ways that you even use, you know, a season of disobedience. You still use it in your, in your plan of reaching out to all people everywhere, including somebody like me. And Father, I, I know there's, there's somebody here today who feels like they're so far gone and they've rejected you for so long and the fall has been so hard that they can never come home. I pray, God, today they're reminded of, of your heart for all people everywhere, even people who were once disobedient and obstinate. Your heart is that they would come home, that they would return. And listen, that's how our God feels about you today. And maybe you're ready to come home for the very first time, to believe, to put your faith in Christ. Just pour out your heart to him today and admit the obvious that you are a sinner in need of a savior and that you believe that one has been provided, that it's Jesus. And today you place your faith in him, your trust, your hope in him and him alone. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. From Pastor Chris and the family at Coastal Community Church, have a blessed day.